Joining us today on the Book Talk segment of the show, great to welcome a man who's written a very interesting book. It's called Pucka's Promise, The Quest for Longer-Lived Dogs. We're joined by Ted Carasote, uh, who also wrote uh, really a bestseller previously about uh, his dog Merle, called Merle's Dory. He joined us today from uh, Wyoming. And uh, Ted, uh, thanks for being with us. How are you? Hey, Doug. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm excellent. I, I pronounce your name correctly. Is it Carasote or Carasote? It's Carasote, but I'll answer to you. Okay, <laughs> apologize for that, but uh, no I had a ch- chance to, to read uh, at least part of the book. I didn't get it till the other day. I'm looking forward to, to finishing it up, but uh, I think a lot of dog lovers, obviously, from the previous book uh, about your dog, Merle, and now uh, talking about uh, Pucka, and really, I, I think you touch on a subject a lot of people have always wondered. I have. Uh, the the, the the live I guess the length of lives of dogs and and why aren't there aren't they longer uh, you really you really kind of hit a nerve there I think yeah well here we are uh, dogs are our best friends in the animal kingdom we share our most intimate lives with them they sleep in our beds <laughs> they watch our children grow up and and yet they only live about an eighth of our lifespan on on average so after I published World's Door I got thousands and thousands of emails, many hundreds of which said, really like the book, and why do our dogs die so young? So I got to thinking back there in 2007, well, why do our dogs die so young? And spent the next five years writing and researching this book that covers both the evolutionary and veterinary reasons or why our dogs don't live as long as they might. Uh, I believe, and a lot of other veterinarians believe, that dogs could share a few more years with us if we raised and bred them differently. I know when dogs, thousands of years ago, however long it might have been, lived in the wild, and obviously they were descendants of wolves, unless they were attacked by another animal or something, they, they would live a pretty good long life, I guess 10, 15, maybe longer years. But since uh, I guess they've become more domesticated, uh, it seems like the, it's, the lifespan is much shorter, depending on the size of the dog. It seems like the bigger dogs live uh, shorter lives than the, than the smaller dogs. Is that right? Yeah, you bring, you bring up a, a lot of good, uh, good points there, Doug. And, and it's, uh, you, you mentioned something that, that a lot of us believe, but which is really, in fact, not true. We, we assume that, that wolves will live 12 to 15 years in the wild, but in fact... They only live about three or four years because their lives are so dangerous. Mm-hmm. They have to take down big animals like moose and elk and bison, uh, which don't like being eaten, so they fight back. <laughs> uh, you know, they drown crossing rivers. They get buried in avalanches. They have to defend their pack against other wolf packs. So they live short lives, and thus those wolves who matured early and their life got to pass on their genes, while those wolves who deferred reproduction were removed from the gene pool. Our dogs have inherited that genetic legacy. Our dogs are the direct descendants of wolves. And so their lives are naturally short. A big wolf will live 12 to 15 years in captivity where it's has you know is safe from all these wild dangers, just the way a big or medium-sized dog may live 12 to 15 years. The other point you brought up about big dogs not living as long as small ones is absolutely true. Uh, small dogs have a mutated form 
of a gene called IGF-1, and it produces lower levels of insulin. And we have discovered that those individuals, whether they're dogs or fishes or monkeys or humans, who have lower levels of insulin have fewer chronic diseases and longer lives. So small dogs having that gene get to live longer than, than big dogs. And the really interesting point, which I discuss in the book, is trying to get these lower insulin levels through diet. Mm. You see uh, so many advertisements now, publications, different types of dog food and you know, medications you can put your dog on. I, I've heard of animals now getting diabetes, which I never heard of uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I guess a lot of that has to do with diet, doesn't it? It does. You know, unfortunately, corn is, is ubiquitous in both dog and human food these days. Corn is cheap. It gets lots of subsidies. Uh, it's, it's pretty useful in kibble because it has a high starch content and enables the kibble to be baked into those nice little shapes that pour so easily. However, corn spikes our dog's blood glucose and insulin levels. And there's a lot of research, as I've discussed, that says that's not a good thing for our dogs to be eating. Consequently, lots of pet food manufacturers have now paid attention to this science and are offering both kibbles and raw food that not only don't contain corn, they contain no grain at all. They're, they're grain-free and would be more of a historic uh, wolf-like diet. And these kind of kibbles and frozen raw foods are, are now available in pet food stores and online. And some veterinarians and myself think that this is a way to reduce the insulin levels of dogs and give them healthier and longer lives. Yeah, dogs in the wild wouldn't eat corn. They'd eat meat, right? No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> so why, why would they? Yeah, just feeding them all the stuff that has... Corn and you know corn syrup and all that—that's uh, that's not natural to a dog's digestive system anyway. So yeah, that would. No, that it's would, not. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You you, you wrote a lot in the book about uh, you always hear you know Bob Barker always used to say have your pet spayed or neutered and you know nothing wrong with that. But I didn't realize that there's health issues of dealing with the shortening the life because of that. Can you talk about that for a minute? You bet. Uh, what we've discovered and it's just pretty recent information since the late 1980s that. Staying and neutering, taking out a dog's ovaries or testes does have consequences, negative health consequences, and what we've discovered is that spayed and neutered dogs have higher incidences of certain cancers, they have more endocrine dysfunction like thyroid and adrenal disease, and they have more orthopedic injury, hip dysplasia, tears of their ACL. Well, I'm not recommending that we don't use birth control on our dogs, but what we now can give our dogs are alternative procedures like a tubal ligation for a female dog, vasectomy for a male dog, the very same procedures we use on human beings. Their reproductive effect is exactly the same as spaying and neutering no puppies, but they don't take away a dog's testes or ovaries, so a dog still has its testosterone and estrogen, which have been shown to forestall or prevent many of these nasty conditions. In addition, tubal ligations and vasectomies, once a vet learns how to do them, are quicker 
and faster to do, so they're cheaper. These would really have great applicability in shelters that are looking to save money and are doing lots of spay and neuters if they replace them with these other procedures. They could take the money saved and use it for more advertising, keeping the shelter open later, and things that would increase adoptions. Yeah, I always thought, uh, in a sense, it was kind of mean to the dog to, you know, when they're one or two years old, whatever age you do it, I guess, uh, to do that to the poor thing. <laughs> I mean, I know it's necessary. Well, you don't want a bunch of unwanted puppies, but I always thought, isn't there a better way than, than doing that to the poor dog? <laughs> yeah, and, and now, we, now we do have a better way. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, uh, which is kind of sad you talk about in the book, particularly with certain breeds, favorite breeds like the Golden Retrievers, uh, the high incidence of cancer in dogs. Uh, you, you wouldn't expect a dog to get cancer or that, that higher percentage, obviously, you know, they're not they're smoking or, or, or eating something that they shouldn't, although I guess it is in food, right? Is that where they're getting it from, or chemicals, or why, well, why are they getting it? Yeah, well, Golden Retrievers are, are a very good example of what has happened to some purebred dogs. Golden Retrievers, uh, back in the 70s, there were two famous show dogs, one famous field trial champion, Golden Retriever. Everyone wanted the genes of those dogs to come into their lines, and so those three popular sires contributed their genes throughout the North American Golden Retriever population. And today, those three dogs have hundreds of thousands of descendants, mm. and their genes are constantly meeting. You know, and what would happen if just a few people constantly bred in human beings? We'd have a lot more incidences of uh, different kinds of genetically transmitted diseases. This is what's happened to golden retrievers. One of these diseases, unfortunately, is cancer. 61% of golden retrievers in North America die of cancer. The other thing you mentioned is toxins. Dogs live closer to the ground than we do. They take in everything through their noses, their most important scents, and they're smaller than we are, so they get a bigger dosage of environmental pollutants per unit of body weight than do we. So what I advise people is be really careful about spraying stuff on your lawns and trees. Don't take your dogs on golf courses or in city parks after they've been sprayed. There's very good evidence that 2,4-D, one of the constituents of many lawn applications, may increase the risk of dogs to cancer. Mm. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's great advice there as far as the toxins, but the inbreeding is, is the main cause of the, the cancers, isn't it? And I didn't realize it all came from those... Two, basically two dogs, right? Three dogs. Well, three dogs. Three dogs. Three dogs. And, wow. and, you know, we, we can't pin cancer on those three dogs. But the evidence shows that when you have... The genetic, uh, the genetic map from those three yeah. dogs. Yeah, right. Yeah, just a few, few ancestors. There's uh, more of a chance of unhealthy recessive genes meeting. Hmm. Said anything uh, that can be done about that? I mean, how do you how do you save a breed uh, <laughs> or get it out of the breed? Uh, can it be can it be done? Well, yeah, you um, you look at pedigrees, and and this is what I advise people who are interested in getting a golden retriever to use online databases. Look back at the uh, breeds of of golden. Look back at the ancestors of the goldens, and try and uh, choose dogs 
that uh, don't have uh, many, many common ancestors. And a good reader, I think you point that out in the book, will give you that information if they don't go somewhere else, right? Well, those the breeders should give you that information, but you can certainly now find it on the American Kennel Club online database, um, and it's easy to track a dog's ancestry way back. In the case of Pucka, I was able to trace his ancestry back 30 generations wow. to one of the first yellow Labradors recorded in history, a dog named Nether V. Boson, who was born on the estate of the 11th Earl of Holm in Scotland in 1868. And so I was able to call up, not the Earl of Holm back there in the <laughs> 1800s, but I was able to call up the breeders of Puck's grandparents and great-grandparents in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and say, you know, what kind of dogs were these? Were they calm, collected? What did they die of? Um, how long did they live? Anyone else who's looking for a purebred dog can do uh, the very same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah, good advice. Well, it's a fascinating book to read. I don't have to be a dog lover to like, but I'm sure uh, all the dog lovers will want to get it. It's called Pucka's Promise, The Quest for a Longer-Lived Dog. We've been talking with uh, Ted Carasotti today. And Ted, uh, uh, give out a website. People can get a hold of you and, and the book. You bet. My website is carasotti.com, K-E-R-A-S-O-T-E.com. And there are photos and video of both Merle and Pucka. There are links to veterinary uh, health issues to training tips and also there are, are clickable banners where you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores and buy all my books. Great. Ted, pleasure to talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, I know this one's going to be uh, as successful if not more than the previous book and uh, hopefully we can do it again uh, the next time you have a book out. Well, thanks so much, Doug, for having me on your show. I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.